There has to be some common sense. Yes, sir. They have the car stopped at 10 and branch microbiome. We still don't know who pulled the trigger. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, retired NYPD Sergeant Bill Cannon with 27 years of service, retired out of Manhattan North Homicide Squad. If you folks like real crime stories from a police perspective, you're in the right place. You know, folks, the Uvalde shooting, the active shooter incident, as we've been referring to it as, is over a week old. It's eight days And there's been so many more questions than answers, things that we can't, as law enforcement personnel, we can't really explain some of the things that occurred, the why and the how and the what ifs. But we do know that the investigation is ongoing. It's continuing. And one of the things that right out of the mouth of one of the um, top law enforcement, former commission of several departments, Bill Bratton said, was that when law enforcement presents these cases at a press conference, they must always add the addendum that this information is preliminary and is subject to change. That really wasn't done in this case. And so it went out there as if it was Bible and if it was the truth. However, as we can see, and as the days turn into week a week, we can see that much of the information that went out very early on turned out to be incorrect, turned out not to be true. And now the police and the investigators are backtracking and trying to determine what in fact is true as compared to what in fact wasn't. And initially we were told, uh, well, the gunman, gunman we know shot in, and his grandmother in the face. That was the first shooting incident. And if we went on, on the timeline, which also that apparently happened at 11 a.m., but all of the timeline seems to have been subjected to change, and it's been changing as we speak. And some of the main things with the timeline that changed, of course, when he arrived near the school and crashed the truck into like a ravine, and then shot at the two workers from the funeral home, and then made his way toward the school. And we were told initially that a school safety officer engaged the perpetrator, the shooter, we won't use his real name, and that was untrue. That that never was true. And instead, a patrol officer sped onto uh, the campus right by the shooter, and confronted a school teacher while the um, uh, the shooter was out in the parking lot. So again, you could see how this information was incorrect. At some point, we were also told that a teacher opens the door, the side door of the school, and props it up open. However, she went out to her car to get something, supposedly some food. It was the end of the semester into the school year, and she was getting some food out of her car. 
And she actually did make it back into the school and shut the door, which was supposed to automatically lock. That's what we're being told right now. And apparently that didn't occur. So all of these things are being changed right now. And we're being told that um, this is what we know now to be the truth. But it's pretty dangerous um, to change what is given out as the truth and say, oh, now we have some new truth. Because the tendency is for people and press and the public and the parents not to believe what occurred at all. One big thing that has come into question is security at the elementary school. Police originally said that the gunman got in through a back door that had been propped open by a teacher, but now they're saying something different, and this is not the first inconsistency we've seen in this case. What's going on? Yeah, that's right. It seems that we get a lot of new information each time we hear these spokespeople representing Texas DPS talk to us. The latest is that this teacher who was said to have propped open a door, apparently she was bringing food back and forth from her car into her classroom. Remember, this was a day of a lot of celebrations at Robb Elementary. They just had an honor roll ceremony. It was on the end of the year. The story at first had been she had propped the door open, and that's how the gunman got into the school without anyone stopping him. At first, we thought there was a school resource officer that person apparently was not even at the scene. But we'd always heard that that door was propped open. Well, yesterday, her lawyer said, no, she saw the gunman approaching, ran inside, and slammed the door shut. And that typically, when you close the doors, they automatically lock. That is the security system at this school. Now, though, we're hearing from the Texas police that she did not... Yes, she closed the door, but it did not lock. So more details coming out here. This teacher has not been identified. Of course, she wants to keep her privacy because people would be angry mm -hmm. that she had left this door open if the gunman was coming. So she's protecting her privacy, speaking out through a lawyer. It's a really tense situation just about this door, whether it was propped open and whether it actually locked when she pulled it closed. Of course, if it did not lock, that would be a problem with the way the school is supposed to be secured. And Julia, we know that the school police chief, Peter Arredondo, the school district's police chief, has come under fire for his response to the shooting. It's understood that he incorrectly believed the gunman was barricaded in the building and ordered officers to remain outside during the shooting. And we've heard those chilling stories from parents pleading with officers to go inside. And after more than an hour, federal agents reportedly then disobeyed that chief's orders and entered the school and then shot the gunman. So given all of this, where do things stand with this police chief right now? Yeah, that's right. We keep hearing that Chief Arredondo, he is the head of a police force of just six that oversee the Uvalde School District. He was the chief and he's the one who was the commander of that day who said there's a barricaded situation, although there are a lot of questions because there were 911 calls coming from the children and they could obviously hear shots and screaming inside these classrooms. He had decided that there was no more of a threat to life. That's the call you would make when you decide that it's a barricaded subject rather than an active shooter. He is the key person I think everyone in the media and anyone investigating this incident wants to talk to. Why did he make that call given the information that he had and what information did he have that led to that call? He at first was cooperating with investigators. Now we're being told that the Texas police overseeing this investigation have not heard from him in the past two days and they did ask him for a follow-up interview. We should also add the Justice Department will likely want to talk to him as well because we learned over the weekend they will also be conducting a review into this incident. And so let's dig into that review. What are the next steps into this investigation and when can we expect more from the Justice Department? 
Right. So this is called a critical incident review. It has happened before, after shootings. It's really looking forward. It's trying to prevent another tragedy like this from happening, from happening and getting best practices out to law enforcement over what they should do in a situation like this. It's not as much looking backwards and holding people accountable, although they will be conducting interviews. As far as the timeline, I'm hearing perhaps a couple of months. It's not something we could see turned around next week. This might not be the place where we get the immediate answers that we're looking for. Those might be more likely to come from the state level, but it should be able to dig into some of these key details on a very thorough level. That at least is what we're being promised from the Justice Department. Important updates on this investigation. Julia, thank you so much. Thanks for watching our YouTube. So folks, there you have it. There's some inconsistencies there that, you know, anytime anyone is involved in a major incident and they've had time to speak with other people, their story frequently changes, especially once they've had time to speak to an attorney. Could there be um, could there be civil charges or a civil case in this? Absolutely, it's going to be a civil case. There's going to be huge lawsuits because huge mistakes were made in this case, especially by that police chief, uh, Pete Arredondo, who was the school uh, police chief, who really had no business being in charge from a skill level and from an experience level, being in charge, in my opinion, being in charge of this active shooter incident. I'd also like to know what are the protocols? What are the protocols in Uvalde at the scene of a major incident? Who determines and what determines who's in charge? And I'll just refer to the NYPD is at a major incident. It's written in our patrol guide. The highest ranking member of the service from patrol services is in charge pending potentially the arrival of the chief of the department, but no civilian member of the police department can take charge at any major incident. It has to be the highest ranking uniform member of the service from patrol services. So it's spelled out on the NYPD. I would like to know if it's spelled out in the Uvalde police department, because I question, and many people question, I've, I've listened to some of the top folks in law enforcement across this nation, including Bill Bratton, say that there was a just a number of huge errors in this. And the number one error, of course, was the decision not to enter that locked door room and confront the active shooter. People in law enforcement just cannot wrap their head around that, why there was a delay in that, okay? I want to play a little bit of this uh, they're also saying now that uh, Pete Arredondo now is not making himself available to be interviewed. Now, uh, whether that's true or not, well, you know, we only know the persons that are attempting to interview him, but he may be being told by his attorney to just not uh, be available right now. Squad, there are still so many questions surrounding specifically the police response to that shooting. In fact, CNN caught up with the school police chief, Preet Arredondo, um, and that just happened this morning. Let's, let's take a listen to what he said and talk on the other side. Just so everybody yeah. knows, we've been in contact with DPS every day, just so you all know. They say, every not, day. They say that you're not cooperating. I've, I've been on the phone with them every day. Just they so you say all. you're not cooperating. So just, just two just, seconds. Just, 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 just so you know, we've been talking to them every day. What, what, is, your, what is your reaction to that? Y'all have a good day. 
All right. So, Guad, there are accusations that the police chief was not cooperating, that he was confirmed to the city council sort of in the middle of the night and no one knew about it. What do we know about what kind of contact he's had with investigators and really where things stand for him right now? Uh, right, Morgan. So we know he had been in touch with investigator. He had done one investigators. He had done one interview. Uh, and then there was news that perhaps he was not cooperating. And then uh, today we heard him speak and say he has been in touch with the Department of Public Safety, uh, speaking to them every day. So it's hard to know exactly what is happening. I think uh, we should understand that there's a lot of pieces moving in Uvalde. As I mentioned, you have all of the services happening with the families and they want to just be focused on that. You have a lot of people visiting who uh, feel like they are connected to what's happened here in Uvalde, uh, people who are parents, people who think they just need to come and pay their respects. And then you have the investigation, right? And you have all of the media, the news outlets, following up on this investigation with a lot of details that we're trying to understand. Uh, we also know that yesterday the city mayor sent a statement uh, saying that the, uh, the new uh, city council members here in Uvalde had been sworn in, Pete Arredondo being one of them. So a lot of things happening at the same time as we wait for more details. But the latest, as we saw in uh, that partial interview, is Pete Arredondo says he has been in communication with investigators. Morgan. All right. Guabanegas for us there. Guad, as always, thanks for being on the ground. So, folks, we don't know now, uh, other than taking the word from Pete Arredondo, whether he is, in fact, cooperating with this investigation. Uh at some point, he's going to have to cooperate. It's not that he's going to have a choice. They will uh, subpoena him. They will force him to testify. And right now, I would uh, almost guarantee that he's being told by an attorney to um, not uh, not to be interviewed right now. And uh, that's for probably his own his own preservation. Could there be criminal charges based on his actions? I don't. I don't think so. I don't think there could be. I think one hundred or one thousand percent. There's going to be a civil lawsuit in regards to his actions. His actions held off cops from going in there and potentially saving many, many lives. You know. So yeah, there will one hundred percent be civil action. So maybe that's also another reason he was told not to be interviewed right now. This is Chief Ed Davis coming up. Uh, he's going to be interviewed, and he's um, for, the former chief of the Boston Police Department who handled the investigation and in response to the Boston Marathon. He's very straightforward, very knowledgeable. I'd like to play him. I played him before on the show. Excellent, excellent chief. Now from uh, former Boston uh, Police Commissioner uh, Ed Davis. He's with us right now. Ed, thank you so much for sharing part of your weekend with us. Uh, as you've heard, officials here in Uvalde have acknowledged that the incident commander made a mistake. He made the wrong decision to not breach the classroom sooner. You've called that an abject failure. Uh, I'm wondering what reasons could you imagine that that incident commander would have decided that this was a barricaded suspect situation as opposed to an active shooter scenario? Good morning, Boris. Um, so these are these are horrible questions to be looking at in in a, in a, in a tragic situation. Uh, the the chaos of these events um, and, and and misinformation most likely will play a role in this when all of the facts come out. Um, it's impossible to be definitive about exactly what happened. 
in a situation like this, the commanding officer should be very close to the scene. We don't know where the chief was at that particular time. We do know a sergeant was on scene in about 10 or 15 minutes. Um, that sergeant should have been in constant contact with the commanding officer to tell that chief exactly what was happening so that he could make good decisions. You'd like to think that the chief was in constant contact with the dispatchers who frequently have the best information as these situations unfold so that he could make good decisions. Clearly good decisions were not made here. And one of the troubling things I see is that people, police officers arrive there by 1215 with ballistic uh, shields. And so it still was another 35 minutes before the entry was made. So the timeline needs to be examined. The tapes of, of the calls and the radio dispatches need to be examined. The commanding officer needs to be interviewed to find out exactly what, what, what information he was operating on. And then after all that is, is determined, we have to look at whether or not the system of allowing uh, someone who might not have the requisite experience here uh, actually run a thing like this. Uh, you know, if there's somebody on the scene with tactical experience, there should at least be coordination and communication with that particular individual so that the commander can make good decisions. So there's a lot going on here. I, I want to zero in with you on that breakdown in communication, because as we understand it, there were kids inside the classroom that were calling 911, pleading for officers to breach the room, to go in. And some 19 officers were still in the hallway waiting. There were parents out here who said that they could hear children screaming, that they heard gunfire. And yet the incident commander decided that this was, again, a barricaded suspect situation as opposed to an active shooting situation, which led them to wait. What reasons would they have for waiting? Well, again, we're not certain, but let me try to put this in context as to what it's like standing in the shoes of that commander. That, that commander is getting information from the radio system. So there are people squawking on the radio about what they're doing and where they're going. At the same time, there are people around the commander feeding them information. And trying to cut through that fog of war is extremely difficult. And then you're pointing out one of the major issues we've had in policing for many years, which is the old fashioned way we get information to people in the field who are dealing with what's going on. We have a telephone call come in that goes to a, 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 a call taker and then it, the information is sent to a dispatcher and then the dispatcher sends that information onto the field over the radio. There's no reason in this day and age why we can't get that actual caller in touch with the people that are actually in the field. And, and, and we've, we, we've, we've talked about this for decades, but we've never been able to solve that. So some of these issues that are being pointed out might be able to be solved by technology. It's time for a solid look at that. That commander is getting way too much information. There's an overload of, of incoming information. And clearly something happened that he wasn't able to cut through to the core of what was going on here. The bottom line is this, if you're in a situation where you've secured everything and then you start to hear gunfire again, there's no excuse not to move immediately. 
Uh, Ed, I, I do want to ask you about something that a parent uh, told the New York Times, a parent of one of the victims, said, quote, we live in this really small town in this red state, and everyone keeps telling us, you know, that it's not the time to be political, but it is, it is. Don't let this happen to anybody else. They go on. Our baby wanted to be a lawyer. She wanted to make a difference. This is Miss Rubio, the mother of one of the children that was killed. Please make sure she makes one now. Do you agree? Is it time to be political with this tragedy, with what just happened, given that parents in this community are calling for it? I've heard those statements, Boris, and I'm telling you they're pathetic. A, a political fix is what's needed here. We need to have a law that tightens up and puts realistic controls over people who are trying to get their hands on thousands of rounds of ammunition and weapons of war who may have psychological problems. The idea that this is political is a ridiculous statement. Of course it's political. We need a politician to pass a law. And, and, and I, I bristle when I hear this after seeing bodies of children in, in a school. It's insanity. We do. Folks, in listening to Ed Davis, a man of tremendous experience, a man of uh, tremendous courage, as I said earlier on, he ran the Boston Police Department. He ran the investigation and the response to the Boston Marathon. So great uh, deal of respect for this man. Uh, one of the things that he spoke about was the information that the person, the on-scene commander, what information did he have and when did he have it? Uh, I'm not making up any excuses for the on-scene commander. I still think it was outrageous not to go in when he, uh, when he was hearing gunfire. And to, to claim uh, that this transitioned from an active shooter incident to a barricaded perp situation, to me, uh, doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Um, so, Antonio, I don't think this was a lawful order at all. Even if it was, who was going to shame, blame someone from saying, forget the order, I'm going in. Antonio, I, Antonio, I have spoken about that before. Uh, and for folks in the chat, whether in the police service or in the military, police officers are only required to obey lawful orders. If someone gives you an order to stand down and you hear kids screaming and getting shot at in a room, I submit to you that that's not a lawful order, that that's an order that can be disobeyed and that the police can go in above um, circumventing the orders of the on-scene commander uh, saying that that was not that's not a lawful order. So I, you know, I would uh, I would debate that. I would say that, that that's they they could. And you know, the Chief Davis also asked about technology. And technology allows officers now to have direct content contact with 9-11 operators and thus have direct contact contact with the caller so that they could be on the phone directly say one of these kids that's calling from that room, they could direct it right to one of the officers outside. Whether the Uvalde police had that ability, that technology, I know that the NYPD now has that 
that's a tremendous, tremendous resource so that you can be talking with someone that's inside telling you, look, this is what's happening. And we don't know if, in fact, anyone was doing that. Uh, we, we have no idea. But again, technology could have solved a lot of these problems. But the big issue here, in my mind, is could this have transitioned from an active shooter into a barricaded perp? And in my mind, the answer is no. The guns were still going off. Kids were calling from inside saying the perpetrator is doing this. He's still shooting people. So I, I don't find that that makes any sense whatsoever. So uh, that's one of the things that uh, he's going to have to explain, this, this commander. But I do not think that it, uh, as they say, it passes the smell test. ABC's Marcus Moore has the latest from Uvalde. New questions about how the gunman got into Robb Elementary School and carried out his deadly rampage. Authorities changing their story on Friday, saying that a teacher left a door propped open, allowing the gunman to enter. The teacher's lawyer telling the San Antonio Express News she had propped the door open to get food from her car. She saw the gunman crash his truck, ran back into the classroom to get her phone and dial 911, and then closed the door shut after realizing the gunman was heading toward the school. Her lawyer saying, quote, she thought the door would lock because the door is always supposed to be locked. Now, the Texas Department of Public Safety walking back their earlier comments and confirming the teacher's story as investigators piece together each moment of that 77-minute rampage. Outside the school, a race to find the wounded. What sounds like radio dispatch capturing one of the victims talking to police. Uvalde School District Police Chief Pete Arredondo, who is facing criticism for making the decision to wait for more resources rather than confront the gunman, sworn in as a city council member after the ceremony was delayed by several hours. 19 students and two teachers losing their lives in the massacre. 10-year-old Amari Joe Garza and 10-year-old Maite Rodriguez, the first to be laid to rest. And Kira, people have been trying to find some way to honor uh, the victims, the young lives lost here. The Girl Scouts have posthumously awarded Amory Joe with the Bronze Cross for risking her life to save her friends and classmates by calling 911 before she was shot. Uh, there were so many brave children in those classrooms in the midst of the attack here. And we have watched as people uh, for the past several days have come to this school. And you see that memorial that has continued to grow. Uh, they've been leaving flowers and, and crosses and messages, uh, hoping to support the families, but more than anything else, to honor those young lives. Kira. All right, Marcus, thank you so much. And as families and communities grieve, the 21 lives lost during that Texas school shooting, teachers became the first line of defense, two of them dying in that massacre. This attack coming at a time, too, where gun violence continues to rise in the U.S. The Gun Violence Archive even reporting at least 680 children have been killed and 1,700 others injured so far this year. Teachers are concerned about the safety of their school halls, demanding that more be done. Zef Capo, the president of the Texas American Federation of Teachers, is one of them. He joins me now. Zef, tell me what you're hearing from fellow teachers in Texas. They're angry and they're scared. Uh, they feel like they've been let down by their state government um, that continues to allow these types of practices, that continues to allow this unfettered access 
uh, to weapons um, that frankly are engineered to take human life. Um, they're, they're especially upset right now that, um, uh, that there was even any consideration of blame of the teachers, the teachers that gave their lives for students, um, you know, and, and that, uh, that, that that should be even something that is thought about right now is, was shameful. You know, folks, I, I agree, like, to make teachers responsible, they have to be part of the security program. They cannot be held responsible. However, shouldn't there be a protocol? If a school is locked down or if you want a school to be really secure, if someone must leave by a certain door, shouldn't there maybe be a security person that walks this person to the door, make sure the door is locked, and if the person wants to come back in, somehow allow that person to open the door and then relock the door. There has to be protocols. There has to be security protocols. And I think, you know, everyone, a security program is only successful when everyone is involved in the security program. So it's to just absolve everyone. You can't absolve anyone. Everyone must be, be involved in the security program. And that's, that's for sure. Um, and we're we're reeling from this, and and we we need our state to do better. We need people to do better for our kids and our communities. So, what type of resources are available, Zeph, to teachers and substitutes who are having a difficult time right now, just processing what took place at Robb Elementary? Yeah. So I think the, the, the one bright spot that we're seeing is communities are pulling together. We've had people coming out to share food and, and, and provide funding to support families and what have you. But we know that there are going to be long-term uh, implications. One of the things that our organization is doing is for all of our members, we're actually providing them free trauma counseling. Uh, they're able to get that counseling for events like this as well, too, um, online for both teachers and parents at sharemylesson.com. We're able to provide guidance and support for how do you talk to kids in schools across the country about these types of issues because every parent and every kid thinks this could be them right now. And this is a conversation that needs to be had so that everyone continues to, um, you know, to, to know that we're working to make things better. There are additional resources I think that people can find the, from the community. The, the Substance Abuse and Mental uh, Health Administration has great resources for trauma-informed practice and responding. And surprisingly, actually, the Department of Veterans uh, has good resources for dealing with the after effects of mass violence that I would recommend uh, uh, viewers to please take a look at if they feel like they're in need or anyone in their community is. Seth, as you know, again, this is raising a lot of debate on Capitol Hill. You've got lawmakers discussing um, stricter gun laws. There's many for it, many against it. What do you guys want to see from lawmakers right now? You know, there's probably uh, uh, experts that will be better at providing the policy guidance on this. But just as a teacher, as somebody who's uh, looking at and, and have dealt with teenagers for, for decades of my life now, you know, um, you have to have an actual license at 16 years of age to drive a car. Um, we should make sure that anybody buying a gun that can do this type of damage to a human life has to be licensed in some way. We have to be keeping up with this. We also have to provide 
insurance. If you harm somebody with that car, uh, you're required to have insurance to make those families whole. And we shouldn't have to depend on donations. We shouldn't have to have this at all. But if something happens with that gun, you should be required to insure it. Mm. Uh, and we certainly do not believe that anyone three days after their 18th birthday should be able to access a weapon like an AR-15. At minimum, they should be required to have a mentor, someone with more experience in handling these types of weapons, work with them. They should have proper training in their use and safety. And frankly, part of that training should include some type of evaluation to determine whether that individual is, is, uh, uh, is capable of actually having that type of responsibility. Well, there's a lot of people around the country right now that agree with exactly what you're saying. You know, there's lawmakers, too, that argue that arming teachers with guns is a solution to combat mass shootings. Is this something that you agree with or your organization has even talked about? What do teachers tell you about this? We absolutely fundamentally are against the arming of teachers. We have heard this. It has resounded uh, uh, with our members time and time again, every time this comes up, that is the first thing we hear. After the shock is over, the next question is, are they gonna make us uh, uh, add police officer to our already extended duties as teachers? Um, I can't, I can't. They you know, folks, they can't force, no one can force teachers to carry guns. I mean, if they became part of the security program by having several teachers armed, that would be up to those teachers that would voluntarily uh, be armed. I'm sure, you know, Texas is a big uh, gun state. I'm sure you would get numerous teachers that would volunteer and voluntarily uh, choose to be armed so that they could protect their classroom, protect their students. But I think it, this uh, person is talking more like as a teacher union rep that, uh, they don't want this added as an extra responsibility. And yes, the responsibilities for a school teacher are numerous and they really don't need to be security officer. But you know something? A security program has to be shared by everyone. And I'm not saying that includes carrying a gun, but security is the strongest when everyone is involved in the security program. Folks, this is Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories. If you like our podcast, please go on our YouTube Hit that subscribe button. It's free. Give us a thumbs up. Ring that bell. If you want to support us, we have a Patreon with three different levels. And we also have a YouTube membership with five different levels. You see the folks in the chat with the green font. They're part of our YouTube family. They support Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories. We're growing our channel. And we're dissecting these cases from a police perspective. Tomorrow night, guys, at 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, I have two superstars from law enforcement on the show. And the one is Nassau County Police Commissioner Patrick Ryder, who actually was a former NYPD police officer. He's going to be on the show also with former NYPD chief and former Yonkers Police Commissioner Edmund Hartnett. Yes, he's one and the same. He was an NYPD chief and he was also Yonkers um, police commissioner. So they're going to come on the show and they're going to lend their expertise to this topic, which is a very, very difficult topic. Nassau County is doing some very innovative things in regards to active shooters and in regards to school security. So I think Patrick Ryder will be one hell of a guest to have on this show. 
and I'm really flattered to have him on the show. And Edmund Hartnett, I've had him on the show before. NYPD um, police officer, chief. He was a former 3-2 cop. And then, of course, Yonkers um, police commissioner. So two great law enforcement executives. They've been around for a long time. And we're going to hear what their take is on this subject. And um, I think it's going to be a really interesting show uh, tomorrow night. They don't provide me school supplies to be able to get through the year, crayons, pencils, paper. Uh, how am I expected to believe that they're going to provide the resources for the training of using a weapon and the weapon itself? Uh, if it wasn't so ghastly to think about, most teachers would think it was the biggest joke that any politician could come up with to think that you're going to arm uh, uh, teachers on these campuses. Um, it, it's something that we're fundamentally and absolutely against. And when you think of everything that's happened recently, just taking in all the events, right? You've got this shooting in Uvalde. You have the controversy and debate debates over critical race theory. You've got the pandemic. We're still dealing with COVID. And you've got virtual learning issues that so many kids are paying for the, the price for already. This is in no doubt impacting teachers across the country. And I'm curious how it how it's impacting staff retention. Well, you know, six months uh, back in December, um, we actually surveyed our members in Texas and 66% of them had told us at that time that they were considering leaving the profession because mm -hmm. of everything that was going on and responsibilities. I can only imagine uh, what they're thinking now after this type of an event. We've got to have real solutions. We have to have actions, no more talk, no more thoughts, no more prayers. Uh, if we want to not only keep kids and communities safe, but actually, um, you know, ensure confidence in our educators so that they will actually stay in the classroom. They have choices. They have other opportunities right now in this uh, job market. And people flippantly, uh, you know, too often say, well, go find another job if you don't like it because they speak out about their conditions. Well, unfortunately for our kids, they are. Uh, because that's what they've been driven to by society. They love the children that they teach. That's what they want to do is teach. They don't want to be police officers. They don't want to be test monitors. They, they, they don't want to have to have uh, themselves and their children at risk in their classrooms. We can do a much better job of making the working and learning conditions for our kids and our teacher, teachers much better if we start working together. Well, I agree with that. I grew up surrounded by a family of teachers and, you know, you just can't pay them enough and do enough. They deserve so much more. Uh, Zeph, appreciate your time today. Really do. So, folks, um, there you hear it from the teachers. However, you know, these are really tough times and not, I mean, obviously an active shooter makes the times ridiculous. However, you know, we're coming off this pandemic and, you know, teachers and students uh, learning um, remotely and having to wear masks. And it's just been really strange times. And when you think about it, in the last month, uh, New York City had an active shooter on the subway system. Someone had just went on the subway system, set off smoke bombs and shot 10 people, randomly shot 10 people. He was also uh, a bit of a, um, 
uh, a nationalist, a black nationalist that was just shooting people. He had put sort of a um, manifesto on his social media. And then we, have, of course, had that horrendous white supremacist shooting in Buffalo where he killed 10 black people and shot an additional three. Horrendous. And then now we get this at Uvalde in Texas. So all of these things you can understand teachers not want to be teachers. I know a lot of cops that don't want to be cops anymore. The profession of police officer and law enforcement has become so intenuous that people just quit the job. I never heard of cops quitting the job back in my day, but people are, are quitting now because they've made the job very unattractive. Many Monday morning quarterbacks, imagine going to work and having a camera on the left part of your chest that watches every single thing you do. You ever think about that? And besides that, then you have people in the public videotaping every single thing you do. And then you have politicians not supporting you and pu the public defund the police. Remember those days? So think about, I mean, I know teachers are complaining that their job is hard, but I would submit to you that law enforcement is probably 10 times harder because they get absolutely zero support. I want to listen to Bill Bratton a little bit because I think he's sort of the guru of law enforcement nationally. And let's hear what he has to say about this. A lot of people have some law enforcement executives across the country have really bad things to say about the response here. And uh, I think that we should listen to them. Seasoned veteran of many police departments who's run many police departments. Just your initial assessment of the approach, it appears, law enforcement took in Uvalde. We know now that at 1140, the gunman entered the school. It was at 1247 that the tactical team arrived and got in and finally was able to kill him. That's not to say, as we've said many times, there were not brave officers who confronted him initially, but were outgunned. But based on what you know, what's your assessment here? Well, a lot of what we're dealing with, Willie, as you know, is speculation at this stage because law enforcement in Texas has been an embarrassment in terms of the information they've been providing, uh, the misinformation they've been providing. I teach this in terms of communications in times of crises. And you always start off with the information as preliminary. You know, folks, he said it right there, and I think it's brilliant. He said, I teach this, and I teach the dissemination of basically of, of, of information at large-scale incidents. And he said, what you must always say is this information that we are giving to you is preliminary and it is subject to change. And I don't think they did that in Uvalde and they gave out a lot of uh, incorrect and bad information that now they're updating and changing totally and it doesn't give the public confidence in what's going on. Subject to change. The information they've been putting out now two, three days after the event has been an embarrassment because there was so much misinformation. So we really don't know at this stage what happened in those first 12 minutes, that first hour. And what we do know is that there seems to have been a violation of the basic tenet of active shooters, which is that you move to the shooter. No matter what, you move to the shooter to save lives. And officers around the country since Columbine now for 30 years have trained to do that. We're going to need to find out in the days and weeks ahead that this department trained for it. Did they, in fact, do it? I'm now reading news stories about some individual officers who effectively did do that in that school. What's also missing here, really, even four days into this event, is there's no schematic about this school. This is not one building. It is multiple buildings, multiple classrooms in multiple buildings. 
So they should be able to, at this stage to basically explain what does this building look like? Where were the officers? Where was the shooter? The confusion, everybody was killed in one classroom. We now find there may be as many as four classrooms this individual was roaming through. No, there's just so many unanswered questions, but at this stage of the game, they should be doing a much better job than they have been doing to try and explain what they do know. And it's, it's a mess. It's an absolute mess. Commissioner, how do you explain? Uh, we know we just heard from Ken Delaney and there is a SWAT unit in Uvalde. We know they've taken new security measures, physical barriers, putting up fences, school resource officers, doubling their budget to keep all these schools safe. How do you explain the delay as you look at this timeline from 1140 to 1247? How do you explain that? Well, that's what the investigation that is un underway, I would assume, uh, needs to be determining so that they can get information out to the public, to you and the media, to get to the public about what they know at this stage of the game. The doors of those classrooms, do they lock from the inside to try and keep a shooter from coming in? Did that preclude their ability to uh, immediately get into these classrooms? We have no information as to what the inside of this school looked like in terms of what officers were dealing with trying to get into various classrooms. And so, again, uh, the news media conference that they're going to do this afternoon, hopefully they'll finally get their act together. Give us some schematics. Give us some timelines. I'm not very interested in terms of the 911 calls that came in in this 12-minute period of time. Initial shot fired at the grandmother would bring a large police response in that small town to that location, the crash of the vehicle, the shots being fired outside at the two people outside the funeral home, the confusion. One of the things that clears that up is what were officers responding to? It sounds like they're responding to multiple shooting incidents in a very small town. There probably weren't more than 10 or 12 officers working on a shift in that city at that time. We don't have that information. So we're gonna to have to wait till more information becomes available but at the moment, they're doing a terrible job of trying to basically control this situation. Hopefully, they may get their act together later today with the news conference that's now scheduled for later today. Tracy, good morning. Thanks for being here. So you heard uh, Bill Bratton, one of the premier law enforcement um, police commissioners. He's been a uh, police commissioner in both Boston, New York, twice, actually three times. Well, he was the chief of police of the New York City Transit Police in the early 90s. Then he became the police commissioner under Rudolph Giuliani, and then again on uh, Bill de Blasio. Um, so an outstanding, also um, I, he was in uh, LA, he was a PC in LA, so very knowledgeable guy. He called the response to this a disaster. He kept referring to um, schematics. And after Columbine, um, police were said to have to be able to pull up a schematic of a school so they could pull up the whole physical layout of the school and know um, where the areas of egress were, areas of entrance, exit, stairwells, all of those, those things. And a schematic doesn't, doesn't have to be in the form of paper. It could be right on their phone. I mean, we have technology today, right? So you pull up the Rob school and you get the whole schematic of the school. That will help the police in responding, and in this instance with an active shooter, to know exactly where the active shooter was and how they could approach the situation tactically. After the uh, Columbine shooting, this was supposed to be something that all law enforcement agencies, during their downtime, let's put all the schematics, every single school 
in a particular precinct, a particular town in our emergency, in our phones, and we could just pull it up like an app. And this way, when we respond to these locations, uh, Antonio, it doesn't even, it's not even a file. They, they can have it as an app on a telephone and just pull it right up on your telephone. Look, this is the 21st century. Most kids know how to use their phone 10 times better than most adults, right? Uh, um, let's see. General Savage, yeah, and I mean you could argue gun control. Of course, we don't want assault rifles everywhere, but more important, why are people killing each other? Uh, well, I mean, I think that we can answer that somewhat, and I'm not an expert on it, but mental health uh, seems that the last all three shooters, whether it was New York, Buffalo, or here in Uvalde, all had mental health problems, all had mental health issues that should have raised the red flag and precluded them from buying these type of weapons. However, um, it seems like it did not. Um, so, you know, those are the things that we have to uh, come together. Basically, General Savage, basically just make the law so it only includes, you know, guns that normally have giant clips. Well, a general savage. A lot of these, um, a lot of these municipalities, these large capacity clips magazines, they're banned, but they must sell these magazines on the black market, and people that uh, choose to do a, an active shooting are somehow able to obtain these high capacity magazines. It's, yeah, it's a real, it's a real problem. It's horrendous and. There's so many things with this um, that I want to see the, the answers to. But um, Milwaukee civilian, General Savage, not arguing about guns in any way, but historically speaking, the United States suffers from violent crime much more than Europe. We've always been a violent nation. Um, I think that one of the things when people speak about, uh, we've heard a lot about gun control and people speak about gun confiscation and they just they're just looking to do that in canada i don't think you could do that in this country i don't think gun owners who are second amendment pro second amendment that they would put up with that i really don't think i think there would be they would there would be a, a huge pushback uh trying to take guns from uh legal gun owners i i don't think that the government would get away with that because one of the things also that's been mentioned every time is that People want to be able to protect themselves and protect their family. So if you take the guns away from the populace, are you also going to take the guns away from the people protecting these politicians that are making these decisions? Um, I don't know. I don't think so. You know, um, I think that uh, I, I think that's a no. And, and, you know, politicians can can they talk a good story until it affects them and then they change their mind. So I want to just play a little bit more about the cooperation or lack thereof cooperation of uh, the responding police chief who made this decision not to enter the school. And I think that's just such a, a huge topic that we're going to hear over and over and over again. This for a while, uh, two days now since Friday. Pete Aridondo, he was the man uh, in the hallway who made the decision not to send in the officers for 40 minutes that would have saved a number of those kids uh, in Uvalde. Uh, police Chief Pete, you might call him. He is the uh, police chief of the Uvalde Unified School District Police Department. Uh, and he was, well, 
missing in action, shall we say, or uh, didn't want to do his job there on Tuesday of last week. And now this week, we learn that he has stopped cooperating with the Texas Rangers. They say he is MIA for any kind of interviews as they continue their investigation into uh, Pete's performance uh, during the school shooting uh, in Uvalde. There's a big question here in terms of as someone makes that order to stand outside the classrooms rather than to run in. Pete had all of the training, as did his officers. Not only that, the Uvalde School District had been through so many of their training sessions on what to do with an active shooter. And yet, after all of this, the wrong decisions were made. Robert Sherman, been following this as well from Uvalde with more. Hi, Robert. Hey there, Leland and Texas DPS. Very carefully clarifying tonight that despite some other reports that had emerged that the whole school district's police force and the Uvalde police force were not cooperating. Uh, they say it is just uh, this one person, Pete Aradano, who has not returned several requests from the Texas Rangers. That's the investigative side of Texas's uh, law enforcement division. Um, that is the sentiment that we are hearing down here, Leland, is, is that uh, there is uh, a lot of people who are upset, they are frustrated that they're not getting answers. Uh, but that decision was ultimately made, according to Texas DPS, by Pete Arredondo to not send and to not breach the door that that 18-year-old government was hiding behind and instead to wait for backup. As we've been hearing for the last couple of days, Texas DPS says that was the wrong decision. Listen to this. There were children in that classroom that were at risk, and it was, in fact, still an active shooter situation and not a barricaded subject. Of course, it was not the right decision. It was a wrong decision, period. There's no, no excuse for that. And as it so happens, Pete Arredondo was supposed to be sworn in to the Uvalde City Council today during a city council meeting. That meeting has since been postponed because this is the first day of funerals for some of those victims. The mayor of Uvalde clarifying today that at this point, uh, Pete Arredondo has not been charged with anything or anything of the kind. He was duly elected to the city council. The seat is his if he still wants it. It is worth noting, though, Leland, being here on the ground ever since that statement was made by Texas DPS that this was the wrong decision and it was inexcusable. We have seen a seismic shift here when in terms of the perspective towards law enforcement. A lot of people down here want accountability. Important to remember, though, Leland, facts in this story and this investigation have been changing almost on a day to day basis today being the consummate example. We had heard in the past that the gunman entered through a door that was left locked. Then we were told that the door was propped open by a teacher. Now we've been told again today that the door was closed. It was supposed to lock, but it did not. Uh, we did speak with the teacher uh, who claims that she was the one who closed that door. Take a listen to her recounting of the events. So they turned around and they, you know, he's got a gun. So I ran back. I ran back into my building. I still had the rock on the door. So I opened the door, kicked, kicked the rock, and then locked it. And we are, of course, not sharing that teacher's name for her own safety. Of course, there has been a lot of criticism uh, and things of that nature flying down here. But it just goes to show, Leland, when it comes to this investigation, the facts keep changing every single day that this investigation unfolds. Once again, we still have more questions than answers. Leland. 
Yeah, and unfortunately, uh, answers in these situations do not come uh, at the speed of cable news. Robert Sherman in Uvalde, despite billions in training, as we've been reporting, police objectively failed uh, in Uvalde. Of course, the school had doors that were supposed to lock. The teachers had training. They had visitor logs. But all of these failures aren't just specific to Uvalde. What does this mean for your kids, for kids around the country? Police incident commanders will show up. Some of them may be like Pete. Some of them hopefully are a lot braver and more decisive than Police Chief Pete. But they're going to be in combat for the first time, oftentimes, trying to make decisions. Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North, formerly the National Security Council, decorated Marine veteran, also now uh, author of Tragic Consequences, The Price America is Paying for Rejecting God and How to Reclaim It. So, folks, um, this this Chief Pete, who they're putting the uh, response and the big mistake of um, not going in to save kids when he clearly heard shots through that door, uh, it's on him. And, you know, I can't believe that a lot of the news stations um, were saying, oh, why, what reason... Would they have not? Would they have not to cooperate with the investigation right now? And I find that that they ask that question to be very strange. That they're either being stupid or purposely stupid. They're being told by their attorneys to wait before you cooperate. They're going to have to cooperate down the road, but they're told to wait. Let's figure out exactly what happened. Because whatever you say, you can also be held liable for in a civil lawsuit. So no one wants to throw themselves on the sword. Everyone, of course, may want for this guy, Pete Redondo, to fall on the sword. But, um, you know, it's they're being he's being advised not to just go in and testify. And I believe probably a lot of the police officers for on the NYPD, when I was on, we used to have a law called the 48-hour rule. And if you were involved in an incident, um, you didn't have to speak to anyone for 48 hours. And you were um, protected by counsel during those times. Uh, I think they since took that um, took that away from the police officers. But it was a good law because when you first are interviewed by investigators, you know, you may be in a state of shock uh, in regards to what had just occurred. So uh, Antonio, burden of proof is different. Yes, but you know something? You don't want to just throw yourself on the sword without thinking about being counseled. So that may be the reason that he, uh, Pete Arredondo, the chief who on the scene, the on the scene commander, uh, did not want to go and, and and be interviewed by the investigators. He's eventually going to have to be interviewed, whether he wants it or not. So, but he will decide, I guess, now. And it seems now he's no longer the police chief. He's now a city council member. So uh, that could change a lot of things also. Protesters converged on the convention hall in Houston, where the National Rifle Association had its first convention since the pandemic. 
ordinarily a non-news event, but obviously the coincidental timing between that and the shooting here in Uvalde uh, has risen uh, the gun control gun safety debate uh, to the very forefront of the American political conversation, something that we weren't even talking about uh, a week ago. Uh, here's one mom that Jorge Ventura of The Daily Caller talked to uh, in that protest. My kids are in second and fourth grade, and this one hit a lot closer to home than, you know, we're comfortable with. We've been, our uh, politicians have been going back and forth since Columbine, 23 years. We made barely any movement in what we need to do to protect our kids at school. And those who don't like the NRA will tell you there's been no movement because the NRA has a very outsized control on Republican senators, even conservative Democratic senators, when it comes to any issue of gun control legislation. The NRA takes a hard line. They don't uh, give an inch. Bring in Bacha Unger Sargon. Uh, to talk about the cultural side of the gun control debate. Bacha, is it that the NRA controls Republicans or is it that there's a lot of Republican voters that the NRA speaks for? So first of all, thank you so much for having me, Leland. Um, I heard your question during the DPS uh, presser. It was such a great question. You asked, you know, don't, don't the, the families deserve an apology? And it was just great to hear your voice and hear you asking that question. And I'm really honored to be able to talk at this somber time. I I think we're all just mourning together. And so the ability to, you know, talk to, to this topic, I think is really important. So thank you for having me. You know, I, to me, I, I sort of chuckle when people talk about the NRA controlling politicians. You know, what exactly are they using in order to do that? What is the leverage they have? Of course, they have no leverage whatsoever. The NRA represents what they think the voters want. And that is what politicians are responding to. The fact that, you know, Americans like their guns. It's not like the NRA is this shadowy organization that is able to somehow behind the scenes control Republicans. Republicans are responding to what they know their voters want. The NRA's power comes from the fact that it reflects what voters like as opposed to the other way around. When we see these protests of, of mass numbers of people, and obviously this is in Texas, they had a school shooting in Santa Fe a couple of years ago. There was a, a, a lot of, of hope in Texas, especially among Democrats, that there would be this bipartisan moment. Uh, didn't happen. Um, and, and now we're here. Uh, for all the protests and all the anger we see and all the coverage of it we see, is gun control legislation really something that is going to be top even five issues among most voters, Democrat or Republican, come November. I don't know how much uh, voters themselves are going to be thinking about it, but I, I know that Mitch McConnell yesterday reached out to um, Senator John Cornyn of Texas and said to him, go make a deal with the Democrats. So again, to the, you know, the power of the NRA, right? Like suddenly what's going on here, right? You know, so that I think the Republicans, um, do right now feel some sort of pressure to meet the Democrats halfway. Um, the issues that have come up are things like red flag laws, which are really important. Um, I think we could, um, things like um, expanded background checks, right? These sort of commonsensical gun laws that have actually a lot of support among the American people. And I think if the Democrats can, you know, um, be satisfied with some of these more limited proposals, they will be able to make a deal. The question will be if they insist on larger things like banning, you know, assault rifles, AR-15s, that's not going to no, get no, any Yeah, check. no, that's not. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, that's not going to get any traction. And the question will be, will Democrats will Democrats sort of be willing to compromise on a few things? Uh, and also a big part of this is how much pressure the media keeps up on Republicans, right? Because uh, Republicans are responding to this uh, right now. And you think about what President Trump, for example, said today uh, to the NRA. A lot of it, though, uh, is things that have already done. It's a very easy way to, to sort of placate we're doing something without affecting gun rights. Here's the president, former president. What we need now is a top to bottom security overhaul at schools all across our country. Every building should have a single point of entry. There should be strong exterior fencing, metal detectors, and the use of new technology to make sure that no unauthorized individual can ever enter the school with a weapon. No one should ever be able to get anywhere near a classroom until they have been checked, scanned, screened, and fully approved. In addition, classroom doors should be hardened to make them lockable from the inside and closed to intruders from the outside. And above all, from this day forward, every school in America should have a police officer or an armed resource officer on duty at all times. All great things, most of which the school here in Uvalde had, Bacha. Is this sort of enough to placate center voters for Republicans and I'm thinking mid, you know, Midwest soccer moms, swing voters? Well, they say, yeah, that all sounds good. And Republicans are on board with school safety. So who cares about gun control? So, folks, we've heard uh, a lot of this stuff before. Unfortunately, active shooters uh, incidents happens a lot in this country. So maybe we do have to think outside the box and come up with some um, real solutions that we haven't uh, we haven't thought of before. Um, Jen Lo, Girl Friday, amazing kid, taught well. Thank God you guys are talking about the little girl who um, rubbed her friend, friend's blood on her so she appeared that she was dead. Yeah, amazing, uh, amazing that she thought that. And I hope that she gets the counseling that she needs to get over this hor horrific, horrific situation. Guys, uh, again, uh, I'm uh, tomorrow night at 9 p.m. on Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories on YouTube Live. I have Nassau County Police Commissioner Patrick Ryder on the show and also reti uh, retired NYPD Chief and Yonkers Police Commissioner. And we're going to talk a little, we're going to talk about gun control. We're going to talk about the Uvalde shooting. We're going to talk about active shooters uh, in general. And we're going to talk about some of the innovative things that uh, Police Commissioner Ryder has been doing in Nassau County to mitigate these situations and to make schools safer, uh, to make students safer, and to uh, train his officers better so that they respond to these situations in a educated and in a highly highly trained manner, and that they know they know what they're doing, folks. I just want to uh, thank everyone. These this topic is um, is definitely a difficult topic to cover, and the politicization of it, how it gets politicized, is um, with the, with the gun control thing and then the Second Amendment thing. Of course, there's a lot of emotion in this uh, in gun control. There's a lot of emotion in school security and active shooters. 
And I appreciate all you guys that are listening and your patience and uh, some of the things and the, the good things you say in the chat, uh, the good ideas you have. Um, Frank Marsha, Peter Pranzo, did you know a detective named Mike Cadella? They called him Rambo. I know Mike Cadella. He's a fourth-degree black belt in jiu-jitsu. Uh, he was at the ho- housing police in Operation 8. I was supposed to have uh, Mike Cadella on the show. In fact, we're going to do a show about policing and jujitsu. I think it could be a pretty interesting show. So, yes, Frank Marsha, I know uh, Mike Cadella. Um, design rhythm, it's like a courthouse. Everyone comes in through the metal detector, but if there was a fire, there are exit doors everywhere. Of course, there has to be exit doors for situations like that. Um, thank you, Antonio. Well done. Excellent episode, Dan One. Thank you, guys. Again, thank all you guys uh, for supporting this channel, Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. And again, we're trying to bring you the top law enforcement topics from a law enforcement perspective. And again, I appreciate all you guys. And um, don't forget to tune in tomorrow night at 9 p.m. It it promises to be an outstanding show. So, folks, have a great night. God bless and stay safe. So